mentioned a few times on previous episodes about how freight has gone mainstream, but there's still so much of the logistics process that even I don't fully grasp yet, and the maritime silo is one of them. Hello again, Blair Friendly with DigitalDispatch.io here, and by definition, the maritime industry is everything connected to the sea or waterways throughout the world, especially in relation to navigation, shipping, and marine engineering which the definition itself doesn't really strike any level of excitement to everyday people, but it should. Because this interview with Kevin Nikeo is such an interesting dive into that world. I learned so many cool things, like how pirates are being tracked throughout global shipping, how illegal fishing can be caught on a satellite, and so much more. It's one of those interviews that as soon as the show was over, I was hyped because Kevin was also able to break down a complex industry into those stories about pirates, fishermen, satellites, and how 90% of all goods travel via ship. It's a really fun one, so I won't waste any more time. Hope y'all enjoy. Now that I've got that kind of off my chest, let's go ahead and bring in our guest for today's show. His name is Kevin Nikeo. He is Spire Maritime's head of product marketing. He is a fellow creator himself, so I'm excited to, to finally get him on the show. So let's go ahead and welcome in Kevin. Thank you for joining the show. I think we have a little bit of an audio challenge really quick, so let's see if we can get that fixed. Can okay. you hear us now, Kevin? Ah, we got you. I can hear you great. Can you hear me? Okay, I just yeah, I I moved my mic a little bit closer. Okay, great. <laughs> Perfect. Well, well, great. So, w- welcome into the show. It's it's, it's a pleasure to Thank to you. chat with you. I was I was going through some of the you know the pre show documents and research that I like to do before for each show, and and yours really resonated with me the most. But for folks who aren't familiar with your career, can you give us a little bit of background of of how you got into marketing and how you found yourself in the maritime industry? Yeah, I would say there's one through line of my whole career, and that is I've always been at the forefront of digital adoption. So I started off in the music business and worked on Rhapsody, the very first music subscription service. I did the same thing with printing and e-commerce. I did that with uh, international money transfers with Remitly. And now I'm doing it here for Spire with Maritime, which is you know really early in its digital adoption. Yeah. And, and I would say that w- with Spire, because when I was looking at the website and some of the YouTube videos that you guys have, it just sent off so many different light bulbs for me because admittedly maritime is, is something it's, it's kind of a, a weak spot for me as far as knowledge base goes. Uh, if you had to explain what the maritime industry is to a fifth grader, how would you explain it? I would say, you know what, look around your room. What do you see? Now take 90% of that and get rid of it because 90% of that stuff was delivered to you by ship. Uh, Maritime provides 90% of the transport of goods. And um, I think that's a, that's a fact that really shocks a lot of people. Most think, see, most people see the last mile, the truck, the delivery person. They don't realize how much shipping plays a role in that. And I think too, you hit the nail on the head because for me, I, you know, I, I always, I, well, my career in, in logistics has more been on the freight and the trucking side, um, and, and even warehousing to an extent, but maritime has always been something that is uh, just is sort of fascinating me from afar, but it's one of those questions that I'm always afraid to ask other industry execs. So I appreciate you breaking that down, uh, for me now that I, I, I know that awesome stat of 90% of all goods within any given household or any given business comes through on, on that route of shipping. And so yeah. did you know a lot about the maritime industry before you joined or, or was it sort of a, a trial by fire for you? 
Well, I don't know that much about it yet, but I've been influenced by it. So my father, I've grown up around the water. My father was a commercial fisherman in Alaska. I remember my mom worrying about, you know, his safety. Uh, I worked on an oyster dredge where uh, at low tide, we'd go load all the oysters in a big basket. And we'd wait for high tide and come with a big dredge and we'd pick all the oysters up and move it to deeper waters so they could get more nutrients. So I've been around water and there's just so many facets that's of it that I'm still learning that um, it's it's an ongoing process. Oh wow, that is a, talk about an incredible childhood. I, having access to the freshest oysters you can imagine. Do you, do you side question? This is I, I you know this isn't technically part of the interview, but I guess it can be because we're having sure. a conversation here. But with the oysters, are you spoiled now by having access to those fresh oysters your entire life? Now you oh, just yeah. go into a restaurant and you're like, absolutely not. I'm not having your oysters. <laughs> Oh, the best oysters, the best fish. I brought an oyster knife with me. So when I was working out there, I got hungry. I'd pop an oyster and eat it. We had a little burner on the dredge. So if we wanted to cook some oysters, we could do that. Uh, we'd pull up some crabs every once in a while that we could steam that night. So it truly was a life of abundance. And that's why I'm a, I'm a huge believer in sustainable fishing. I think if you manage mm. things correctly, you know, we can have uh, fish crops that last us from time. And that's that's one of the things that attracted me to Aspire is their, their mission really is to uh, leave the world in a better place through sustainable fishing, through weather prediction, and just helping people make better decisions about resources. Now, it, it, you brought up a, a great question, and we'll, we'll get into to some of the, the, I guess, the specifics of what Spire offers. But from uh, from the, I guess, the industry standpoint, when you first joined and you started learning, I, I guess, a, a officially of what the maritime industry does. What was that first yeah. sort of aha moment for you that connected the dots as far as the the content that or the marketing that you could be creating for this industry? Because it sounds like storytelling is just at, at the, the ethos of it. Yeah, I mean, it's really people. I mean, you know, we're convinced by logic and we're convinced by emotion. And the emotional tug at my heart is when I was working at Remetly and working with seafarers who just spend months at seas during COVID. Many of them were away mm. from their families for over a year and they need to send money back home to their families and we would help them with that. But they just make a ton of sacrifices um, for themselves, for their families to to, to trade those 90% of goods. And so that's um, really where I found out that stat and where I realized how important it was for me. The second moment came when I was thinking about, well, how is all that data tracked and found out, well, it's, it's done on land with these transponders. But, you know, when you think about it, back in the day before there was no technology, what would you do to find out what was going on? You'd go and climb the highest peak. And from there, you'd look at what's going on. And that's what Spire is really doing. We're looking from space down at earth and that allows us to look at things like um, many parts of the ocean aren't covered by the land-based tracking systems and so that gives us the coverage along uh, with a whole bunch of other things that we can do now with with the, the your job of tackling marketing and and really product marketing it, it's your really job to to weed out the bs and to really focus on the storytelling how are you initially tackling each part of that process of weeding out the bs and then focusing on the storytelling. Yeah, I loved uh, your example today about how you on your form field ask how somebody found out about you. Uh, that's exactly what I do. So I spend a lot of time with customers and customer success, and I basically reverse engineer their journey. Like, what did they do to get, get here? Of course, I can see the tracking on HubSpot, but I want to hear it through the lens of the customers, and some things aren't always trackable like a podcast. Mm -hmm. So I do that, and I found out, like, 
what did they do? And I, you know, one thing that always comes true, it's, it's multiple touch points. So that's why having a multi-touch attribution model is very important. It's not always just one. And then what, what were the dis- critical deciding factors? Like, how did you decide to pick us? Um, I just met with one of our customers, Q88, earlier in the month, and I asked them, and they said, oh, yeah, our coverage is really good. You gave us the best data. But I got to tell you, your support was phenomenal. Your your mm. sales engineer, Austin, did an amazing job. He'd call us back right away. You had really, really good API documentation. And that told me that we actually didn't talk about that enough. So in all of our go-to-market collateral and in our web now, I talk a lot more about um, the support. And I put, our, I put our API documentation up front and center. You don't have to register to get it. You can actually see what we have right there. I love that. Ungated um, content. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm actually thinking of moving to that. We, we do too much friction in, mm-hmm. in marketing. And uh, I really think our job is to reduce that and make it really easy to have a frictionless customer journey. So um, let, let people opt into the things they want to do. So I'm going to play around with a lot that a lot this year. Um, the other thing I, I think is really important. So we just launched this brand new platform called Invariantine 2.0. And I spent a lot of time with product and engineering and they had set up all this really good automated testing. And it was pretty fantastic because they could actually show how our coverage improved over the last version of our product. And I just shared that with customers and prospects. And that was like a really powerful piece of proof that what we have works. And so there's a lot of great sources. And I think, you know, people want to hear the customer testimonials, but they also want to know that you've got the data to back it up. Absolutely. Because I think that too, you could using that insight and using that information can maybe trigger some, some light bulb moments for other folks that maybe they're not using the platform in that way, or they haven't thought about it in that way, but another customer might be doing that same thing. So then it just helps them sort of further, I guess, invest themselves and invest that, that time and that energy into a a, a platform. Um, that's not, I guess you would consider would Spire considered to be a core component of the business um, or, or how they operate? Who is your target customer? And, 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 and give us a little background of, of what their workday looks like. Yeah, we have a lot of customers that are helping make the maritime industry better by building applications, providing data. We provide data to, to freight waves um, so they can be the Bloomberg of, of uh, logistics. And so they incorporate it with their data sets. They use it to build their applications. And they, we work also directly with customers. It might be a shipper. It could be a logistics company that um, incorporates it into what they do. Um, we, we primarily focus on the data and making it easy to access. We're not really building any of the end-to-end solution. Uh, we let our customers do that. And so I, I guess, you know, now that you, you bring up Spire, give us a little bit of background because it's a, it, the website feels like it's a huge company. I mean, you have satellites and they, from what I understand, you're transmitting the data down to the, the ocean carriers. And then from there, your customers are making educated decisions. Can you sort of give us, you know, I hate to ask the fifth grader question again, but can you sort of give us that, that rundown of, of how your, it just the entire business operates? Yeah. So it all starts out with this really small satellite uh, about the size of a bread box. We call it a lemur. And we put that satellite in space. We have over a hundred of them. And from there, we, we pull a lot of data, uh, and, uh, we use that to drive everything from awareness to what's going on with airplanes, the ships that I'm talking about. And then we do some really 
interesting thing about with weather, where we look at the how particles fly through the air from space, we measure that and we get really good prediction of predictions of what's going on with Earth. Uh, on Earth. So we've done this. We have a couple different business units. Uh, we have the aviation business unit. We have weather. Um, we partner a lot with our weather team to get solutions for customers that are trying to do transport over the water. They need to know what the weather conditions look like. So we'll team up together. And the other division that's super interesting is um, space as a service. It's very much like how Amazon started AWS, you know, they built this great platform to power their e-commerce. And now that they make that available to all of us, probably this show is running on AWS right now. Well, we're doing the same thing with satellites. We allow people to put their software in space on our satellites, or we'll build satellites uh, for them. And really, I think that's really democratizing space. You know, before you had to be a billionaire or you had to have government funding. And now we can work with funded startups, do some pretty interesting things. Tell us a little bit about some of those interesting things that you're doing, because that's wild space as a service. And so I guess, how does that work? Are you, are, do you have to add the software into the satellite before it's launched into space or can you remote add it or, or remotely add it after it's already in space? Yeah, there's two ways because we're constantly adding new satellites that, that next round of satellites can include that software. And then there can be remote updates as well. Oh, that's rad. And so what, I guess what kind of software is being added to those those satellites? Is it uh, related to the industry or maybe it's a it doesn't really matter. It's, it's just, you know, a, a, another industry that maybe has to be, you know, just have this functionality. How does that sort of work? What does the customer base look like for something like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I look at it now, a lot of it's about tracking, it's about weather, but there are so hmm. many possibilities. Um, I know our space services group. Uh, does something with Space Loop, which uh, provides and helps with satellite communications. So, just simple IP messaging and email and data transfers. So, um, you know, just like we have software on Earth that just never stops innovating, I think we're going to see the same thing in space. And now that we open this up to more people, uh, we're going to see the same innovation we've seen in maritime. You know, we could have easily tried to build all the applications ourselves for maritime, but we realize. We could power hundreds and hundreds of more by making that data available to everybody. That's awesome. So, so coming from uh, you know the the little bit of a sidetrack that I took with the space as a service, yeah. going back to the the weather conversation, how are you guys processing a lot of that data? I, I, I is it just something that you you're collecting the data and then you send out weather reports, or is it something where like uh, it's a warning system that hey, this particular ship needs to be worried about this condition that's heading their way. How does that sort of fit into their workday? Yeah, right now, I, I know that team focuses just a lot on, on that data and then the machine learning and building the models to predict things mm. or um, building models and models just like Nate Silver did, although he was not always so accurate. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they're doing that. And then they're looking at some of the applications and the smart relators that we, we uh, build on top of that. And the team has done a a really good job recruiting like weather experts and we've got a whole team in boulder um that have done this in the past with other companies it's a business i don't know as well as i should but i just know that um they're really doing some innovative things and and their solutions can help with agriculture it could help with um, sustainability by telling you where you can use solar or where you can use wind and so i'm, I'm pretty excited about what they're doing 
Wow, that that sounds super fascinating because in in one of the videos that I was watching, you guys had a couple of examples of how the technology directly affects things like port efficiency and even the cost of tomatoes. Can you can you tell yeah. us I guess who who what is what would the target customer be for for Spire and how how would they use this kind of insight in order to adjust their days because or adjust their workday and how they spend their time? Yeah, so let me give you an example. If let's say you're running a ship, right, and you're headed to the port of Long Beach, and you knew ahead of time there's actually congestion, well, you could actually just slow your roll, slow down the ship, and you'll benefit from fuel savings, right? And so, mm. yeah, it's not great that you can't um, get in there as soon as you can, but you can make the most of a bad situation by at least uh, by at least figuring out um, when you should get there to. Uh, deal with the least amount of congestion. So that's one example. Um, let's say you're at a port too, and you want to know who's coming into port. Well, all the ports have different berths for different types of ships. So you not only need to know what ships are coming in, but what type of berth are they going to need uh, mm. to do that. So those are um, just two good examples. And then one of the things my uh, colleague, Andrew Kerman came up with this is, you know, everybody's focused on the last mile we're focused on the first miles, right? We give that visibility way before it gets to be a problem. We work with a company called Gravity Supply that gives real-time visibility to all the logistics uh, along the way. And um, uh, we're excited to see kind of what, what happens there as well. Oh, that that's a good phrase that you use. I like that because everyone is focused on the last mile, but the first mile uh, mm -hmm. might have the greatest impact on, onto your bottom line. Is that an accurate statement? Correct. And it's actionable, right? You, you may not have a lot of choices as you get too close to port, but if you know what's happening ahead of there, there's probably more options and decisions that you can act on uh, to, to deal with the situation. Now, with with a lot of your, your data collection, you, you mentioned that it's land versus sea. How is it? Are there any ships, I guess, being tracked as well and that you're incorporating into your data and and then how are you then taking that to the next step? Or is are you measuring like geopolitical conflicts that are going on that may impact a you know a, a ship's travel time? Is anything like that being put into put into uh, I guess work or or the work day? Yeah, we're working with this really great company called Global Fishing Watch, and they're they're great about catching illegal fishing. And the way it, it was described to me is so they can we can help them track certain vessel types. And if we hmm. see like two vessels kind of going like this, like synchronized swimmers, we know that vessel type could be dragging a net between the they can, um, they can notify the local authorities. So uh, it can really help out with situations like that. And so the other thing I, you know, I wanted to call out is just kind of what the sources our data, our data are since you alluded to it. So we have our data from space, from our satellites, then we get all the data from the terrestrial or land-based systems. And then you you alluded to ships, and there's something that we have called dynamic AIS. We're actually pulling the activity from ships. And it's, I don't know if you use the application Waze, but it's kind of like that. Like the busier it gets and the more ships that have it and the more crowded it is, the better it, it actually helps work to let you know what's going on. So um, there's a lot of good sources of data that we put together. And the other important part of it is um, we have to clean a lot of that up. We have to get uh, things to match. A lot of times there could be duplicate vessel tracking numbers. And so we kind of have a rock star data scientist team that kind of builds all the algorithms to clean that stuff up. 
That's fascinating because, I mean, if you think about the, the perspective of everything that's going on in the world, you can't necessarily control it. Um, but using that data, you can make it actionable in order to try to alleviate from, from some of those things that, that those negative things happening and impacting your shipment. What, what about like, uh, the, I guess the modern day pirates? Uh, are, are you guys protecting, you know, some of that cargo <laughs> from, from that, that side of the coin too? Or, or are there any kind of data tracking that will tell you, you know, that maybe this is a pirate ship and not a fishing ship? Yeah, I think um, um, some of our uh, some of our partners are, are working on things like that, and you know sometimes people will turn off their tracking systems, but we have ways of making sure that uh, uh, we can we can report and deliver on that. And so I hope yes, you enjoyed that, that episode of the Digital Dispatch podcast. Oh, wow. If you like so what you heard, consider sharing it with a friend. So Podcast discoverability is a bit of a challenge for creators like myself, so word of mouth so goes a long way. You can check out past episodes of the show by hitting up the learn page on digitaldispatch.io. I also have some free courses on the site that cover content marketing, distribution, and even how to audit your own website. That's going to come in handy as everyone starts to prepare for those 2022 budgets. While you're there, you can also check out our socials, the DIY shop, or custom services. Until next time, I'm Blythe Thumbleaf, and I will see you real soon. Because the client doesn't want to reveal their secrets to competitors, or you're really doing top secret work so absolutely <laughs> and so so going back to uh the, the marketing role of, of what your job what, what does it what does your day-to-day job look like um are, are you and and how is it different from when you first started because i imagine when you first started it was more of an educational barrier that you were you were trying to get over now that you you're 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 pretty well versed in the industry how are you uh, applying that insight into what your day-to-day marketing looks like yeah, I mean, I'm still very new, and you know, my playbook anywhere I've gone because I've shifted to a whole bunch of industries is just start with the customer first, mm. read all the research, spend time with them, learn their problems, and there's so many tools um, that we can use to find out what's going on. There's the in-person customer interviews, there's the uh, research you can read, and now you have all these tools to see well what happened when they came to the, your website. Where did, where did they fall off? Where did they leave? Where did they look like they get they got stuck? So um, all those things are, are really important, and it's it's a great place to start. As I said before, kind of reverse engineer kind of what, what you need to do. And so I'm a big believer in both data-driven insights, but also kind of the anecdotal feedback you, you hear from customers. And I'll give you a really good example of that. So we, this is not at Spire, but another company I was at, um, we were in focus groups. And we heard from some of the participants like, yeah, I don't know if we trust you. You guys have this mobile app. It's really cool. You have this website. How do I know you're going to give me customer service? You have FAQs, but is there anybody there to help me? And Mm -hmm. it was a great point. So we ran an experiment and we actually put a phone number um, on our website, the header, very prominent. And we did an A-B test and we got three calls, but the conversion rate on the version with the phone number was statistically significantly better. And I think it's because it provided that insurance assurance to the customer that there was, an, so there was somebody to call if, if hmm. you had a problem. Oh, that, that's a really good insight because I, I think that that's where a lot of companies, especially in logistics default to is they just put the phone number on the site and then they, they, they come to the marketers and they're like, how can we reduce these phone calls? But maybe, having the phone number yeah. on the site is closing them business Could and help. they don't even know it. True. Yeah. Now, th- that brings me to, to one of my next questions, because you said that there's a difference between marketing an organization or marketing org and a growth org. 
What do you mean by that? Statement? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are level, it's a continuum and I've really been involved more in growth marketing and growth marketing is different because you amp up the level of exper experimentation you do. You're not, you know, you're always testing new things. There should be an AB test running on every single thing that you do and it's never good enough. Um, it borrows a lot from lean manufacturing. We do retrospectives. We say, okay, what went well? What could we have done better? And what are we going to try differently next time? So you're always tr trying this process of continuous improvement uh, on the marketing side. The other thing too that, you know, I, I remember watching uh, my first kind of um, things on growth hacking from Andrew Chan and others is the biggest shock to me is growth hacking starts with retention first. What can you do to get your customers to stay with you? And the reason why it starts there is if you get customers to stay with you and they spend more money, their lifetime values go up. Well, what happens when you have a higher lifetime value? That actually means you can spend more on marketing. So that's part of that growth flywheel that you're building. Um, and the final part, like, and you see this, this is why I've watched your show. You had a great section on multi-touch attribution and marketing ops. You always need to be learning. Like marketing is one of the most dynamic fields, the technology that's out there from bitstream intent data to automation is always changing. So you've got to have a growth mindset and what worked for you five years ago isn't going to work for you tomorrow. Amen. I am. I. I call myself that. Or I, I see that. I think the best marketers are the ones that are curious and they're always willing to learn. But then you you just reach a next level when you're willing to forget your biases and maybe learn something new. I, I think that happened. Uh, you know, for me about a couple of years ago with uh, demand generation and and how. Mm -hmm just creating content and putting that information out where people are already at just significantly increases your, your, your trust factor for, for new customers, you know, coming through the door, potential customers that, that may come through the door. Yeah. And, and actually there, there's a question I wanted to get your feedback on. I think, you know, we're always learning from each other. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is testimonials, right? So people mm -hmm. want to see testimonials, but they're very biased, right? Most people only talk about what's so great about your company and I'm actually thinking about whether or not it makes sense to have more of a prompter review of the good, the bad, and the what needs to get fixed and use that instead of just kind of a one-sided testimonial. Have you thought about that and, or would you, what's your reaction to that? I love that idea because as soon as you said that, the wheel started turning for me and it, especially if you do those from an interview perspective and, and maybe at first you use the good parts because everybody wants to show off mm -hmm. the good parts. Yes. Uh, but then yeah. the flip side of it, you could take that feedback that you're getting from your customers and then make those mm -hmm. improvements on your own. And then in the future, release that as a, you told us what you wanted to, you told us what improvements you wanted from us and here's how we fix those. I think maybe that's a, sort of similar to what folks use on um, like different project management software uh, that I use where they will have a, a live page where it's a product roadmap. Here's what we have coming in the pipeline. Please make a suggestion mm -hmm. here. Um, is that something sort, sort of similar to, to, to what you're thinking or, or maybe trying to plan out in the future? No, but that's what's so cool about this is like, I didn't even think about it from that perspective. And now that gives me ideas. And so, you know, that's my point about the growth mindset is you've got to figure out how to uh, just slay all the sacred cows and just <laughs> do things differently. Cause it, 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 for, it, look at the exercise we just went through. It forces you to think about problems differently too. Absolutely. Cause we're at the nature of it, of 
it really logistics in general, we're all problem solvers. We're, you're uh-huh. going to experience problems at some point, whether you're in marketing or whether you're in customer service or accounting, you're going to experience some kind of problem. And so you need to be able to address it. And if your customers are giving you that firsthand I- insight as to how you can make your product or service better, I don't know of anyone who, well, the, the best companies will use that insight in order to make themselves better. And the other ones will just ignore it. And, you know, they, they, you know yep. what happens to them is, is to their own making pretty much. Mm-hmm. Now, and it's from, fun. It, I love it. It is fun. It's, it's, it's reassessing everything that you're challenged with and then trying to come up with a better solution, I think, is, is, is something that we will always challenge ourselves with, especially from a data perspective, from the marketing side of things. I mean, obviously, you guys have an enormous amount of data and then data scientists that, that are analyzing you know, things in space to, to, to weather, to terrestrial, to, to all of these different factors. But from a a marketing data perspective, how often are you looking at your AB tests? Is this something that you're doing every quarter, every six months, maybe once a year? What does that process look like? Because I I do feel like sometimes in marketing, we can become too obsessed with the data and it, it, you know, we stop doing things before we actually see if it's working or not. Yeah, so if I'm spending money on it, I, I want a good idea of what's when should I get my first readout, right? Because I've definitely mm-hmm. seen people set campaigns and forget it, and they're not driving any business and they've just wasted a ton of money. So if I'm spending money, I will monitor that quickly. If I'm doing an experiment on a high volume page, I'll actually look at that daily. And I, I do have to admit it's more by choice because I like to see what works and, and what doesn't work. And then, you know, some things take longer and you have to be patient. So it's really, you know, where you're using it and kind of how much money you're spending on it. Um, but uh, I think you should always have an, always be experimenting. There should always be something running because um, that's the only way you're going to improve. And I've, I've seen most programs, whether it be LinkedIn marketing or even Facebook advertising or programmatic, you don't get the win overnight. It's like, it's a slog. <laughs> and you, in your first three months, you improve it by 1%, then you improve it to this to get, you get it to a point where, you know, it's break even and it becomes profitable and it's an ongoing and continuous process to do that. You, you win, you win the race in inches and improvements by each inch. Oh, I love that phrase. And that brings up my next question because every executive wants to know the answer to the ROI question. How are you answering that question? What what methodology are you following? Yeah, um, so I definitely look at customer acquisition costs and then compare that to the lifetime values of the customer we're getting. Um, what your ratio there really depends on um, the growth opportunity for, for the business you're in. I think if you're in a growth business with good product market fit, you should be very, very aggressive on those ratios. Um, if you're not and you're focused on earnings, then you probably want to make sure your lifetime values are much higher than your costs. So that's kind of broad level. Then then you need to figure out, well, what do I want to spend on each channel? And that's why your discussion around multi-touch attribution was really important. So there have been so many times, like in the beginning of Facebook advertising, where you would say, oh, look, it's it's not you're spending all this money and it's not driving any business. So then we turn it off and we watch our organic search numbers go down. We watch direct go down. It's like, oh, maybe we're just not tracking it. Uh, at that time, in the very beginning, it's because we didn't have that multi-touch attribution. And, or if we had it, we were only looking at last touch. So um, this is kind of where the details around that can help you figure out um, 
where to look at budget. And that's part of the reason why it's important to understand the customer journey. They're not going to, it's not going to just be one thing that prompts them to buy your product or service. It's going to be multiple touches that work together to, to bring that customer to your doorsteps. And that's that's a great way to put it because people think that they look at the you know the the last touch attribution report maybe you know they, they they run a quick report in HubSpot and that's what they tell them but they didn't realize that it was all of these different things that yes. affected what that buyer journey and you would never know that yeah. unless you had the conversation with your customers and so that 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 sort of leads me to uh, one of my next questions because one thing that you said that told me I think I'm gonna like this guy is because you said you hate MQLs. Tell everybody why yes. you hate MQLs. Because I was that guy that loved MQLs <laughs> and I created a huge mess. I remember like very early on in my marketing career, it's like, yo, look at all these leads I've gotten. And I would bring a ton of them in and the sales team would get overwhelmed. And they'd say, well, now we need lead scoring. They wouldn't talk about what to do first. And also it's just a bad customer experience if you focus on it too much. Because then what you do is you're forced to turn that MQL into a sales qualified lead. And you know what? When you're doing content marketing, you're trying to educate somebody, they may not be ready to buy, right? And so why force them to have that sales call? Why, why say they're a bad lead because they're not ready to buy? I've seen many cases where you have college students using your product or researching it. Well, that college, college student then becomes an employee at a company that ends up buying you. So I really believe in focusing on sales qualified leads um, mm. because that helps with tight orchestration with the sales team it keeps them focused on the things that are, are really important and you know if you're a publicly traded company or any company you've got to have predictable revenues and the mm -hmm. conversion rate from an mql to close deal is so off but you start doing it from a sales qualified lead if you're doing kind of the bant you know budget authority need timing conversation that's highly predictable and so even if it takes 60 120 days to close something you actually can count on it. And so you get those predictable revenue streams. So from a customer experience and a nurturing standpoint, um, your ability to partner and work with sales, I really believe in focusing on, on the bottom of the funnel metrics. Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that, because I think that that's, it's where a fundamental difference has happened over the last 10 years of marketing, where marketers have been tasked with just generate leads and it doesn't matter the mm -hmm. quality of those leads. And then yes. th that's all they're measured on. So there, there's no incentive to try anything else because if they do try to get creative or if they choose do try to maybe start up a podcast, they're, they're not going to be measured on that until maybe six, 12 months from then. And then by then, who knows if you even still have a job because you stopped focusing on the MQL. So, so I love that take completely agree. Um, so, so with all that said, and with the, the growth of Spire and, and all of the different data sets that, that you guys have at hand, how are you using that to, to create a new target customer? Or how are you targeting your customers now? based on all of that insight of, of what you just shared. Yeah, um, so uh, we really focus on, well, what does our customer need first? So if we talk to our customer and they have both a need for a weather solution and a maritime solution, we, we team up together to do that. Um, there's so many cases where um, our maritime customers become weather customers. Um, what we try to do as part of our customer success effort is introduce um, our customers to the other parts. Um, so uh, at least kind of walk through a list of the features and if they're interested, then we, um, we refer that person to somebody on one of the other teams. Mm -hmm. So collaboration is, is, is pretty critical. And, you know, we're all 
you know, we're all mission based. We want to see us succeed. And so for us, um, if, if we're giving a ton of business to another division, that's, that's great for all of us. That's awesome. So customer interviews and collaboration with other departments. It sounds like you guys are, are definitely headed on, on the right track. So, so Kevin, where can folks follow more of your work? Where can they follow Spire's work? All that good stuff. Yeah. Uh, you're in Maritime where our Twitter, our Twitter feed is at uh, AIS data. Um, you should, you can also go to uh, our website. We have a blog with really great information from our weather team, from Maritime. Um, we do a lot of really good data stories around port congestion. So that's another good place to start. Um, I, I'm not active, as active on Twitter as I used to be, but I'm there at, at KNACAL. And um, yeah, those are all the places you can reach out to us. Awesome. Well, well, we, I know we have some of those linked in the show notes. So anybody who's interested in, in, in following your work and, and your, and your company's work, we'll make it easy for them and link to them in the show notes, but appreciate your insight and, and all, all good information, especially on, um, the potential of, of pirate seizing, uh, different cargo. I thought yes. that, that was fascinating. You, and also, I, I, have, I have a feeling you're going to be a pirate for Halloween. <laughs> you're fascinating. <laughs> Well, I've been one in the past, so I can't, I, I, I'm, okay. I'm not going to repeat it. I'm actually going to be a uh, Gandalf from Lord of the Rings for, for Halloween. So for folks who, who are, nice. are nerdy with me, they'll, they'll know. What are you going to be for Halloween? I haven't even thought about that. So, um, <laughs> you, you know, got two days. I, I, well, I have a sweatshirt I put on every year that's red and it says ketchup. So I'll probably just eat ketchup again. <laughs> Well, as long as it works, right? It's probably a good, yes. uh, a funny talking point. <laughs> all right. Well, Kevin, yes, I appreciate is. your time today and, and your insight. Um, like I said, we'll link to all, all of your different social connections in the show notes so, so people can follow more of your work and learn about um, all the cool stuff that you guys are doing. So thank you again. Thank you for this opportunity. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Digital Dispatch Podcast. If you like what you heard, consider sharing it with a friend. Podcast discoverability is a bit of a challenge for creators like myself, so word of mouth goes a long way. You can check out past episodes of the show by hitting up the learn page on digitaldispatch.io. I also have some free courses on the site that cover content marketing, distribution, and even how to audit your own website. That's going to come in handy as everyone starts to prepare for those 2022 budgets. While you're there, you can also check out our socials, the DIY shop, or custom services. Until next time, I'm Blythe Brumleave, and I will see you real soon.